I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And to start us off, we're going to talk about China tech infiltration. So what does that mean? One of the articles I'm going to, I'm going to highlight here kind of describes it as a Chinese body and a U.S. head. So let's look at the two examples. One would be uh, ByteDance. Uh, the owner of TikTok, we've talked about uh, ByteDance is the largest private tech company in, in the world. We've talked about their revenue numbers. We've talked about Kevin Mayer, the uh, executive from Disney, is now the CEO of TikTok, COO of ByteDance. ByteDance owns multiple content social media platforms in China and the US. TikTok uh, being the US content platform, they bought this thing called Musical.ly and then turned it into TikTok. And uh, basically, when you look at the engineering teams, where are these products being developed? Who's coding them? Those people are in China. And then you look at the sales teams, you know, for, for TikTok, it's selling ads to brands. You look at the sales teams, you look at the marketing teams, maybe some of the product, you know, product managers and, and support teams. They're in the United States. But the actual guts of the product, the actual thing that is being coded, actual thing that allows you to have this app on your phone and use it, is in China. Now, what usually goes along with coding is the thing called data. And so both TikTok and the next example of China body U.S. head is Zoom. Both of these companies have had huge data problems where U.S. data is being stored on Chinese servers or it's going through China. And it's a big problem for a number of reasons. So let's look at this latest news here about TikTok. Now you have the new CEO, Kevin, an American executive from Disney. Obviously, he wants to make sure he can nip these kind of China-U.S. issues in the butt. So they are now... Uh, ByteDance and TikTok are putting into place, you know, some some Chinese walls uh, to break apart this sensitive data. And so, multiple internal sources confirmed to this publication that ByteDance has recently implemented a restriction on domestic employees, that's Chinese employees, access to code bases for overseas products. According to the sources, the new internal policy means that those employees who are currently in China working on apps and services for the home market are now largely stripped of access to sensitive data of ByteDance slew of overseas products, including but not limited to TikTok. So the irony in all of this is that ByteDance has said that these engineers never had access to this stuff in the first place. So, 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 someone is making something up here. And obviously, these engineers did have access. Remember, there's a story, uh, we covered it on the show many months ago, where you had the CEO of ByteDance say that if President Xi asked him to kick someone off the platform, he wouldn't do it. And we were joking on the show that the irony is, well, um, that's absolutely not true because otherwise the CEO of ByteDance would be thrown in jail and all of his family would also be thrown in jail. So that user is going to get kicked off of 
TikTok. So now they had said, oh, well, these, you know, our engineers don't have access to this US data. Well, it turns out they do have access. And and the article goes on to say, apparently the Chinese engineers are annoyed that the parent company ByteDance has limited their access to data and code for users and apps outside of China. These engineers that weren't supposed to have access in the first place do. The engineers are now upset that their privileges have been taken away. Um, and it just goes to show you that despite what these companies say, whether it's publicly or even to Congress, it's just very far from the truth. And that when you have such huge dependencies of these engineering teams, of these product teams that are based in China, there is no way to truly decouple these things. Even this is an effort to try and do that. But it's just not possible, right? You're putting a Band-Aid. You're just, it's one Band-Aid after another. You have a business that was built in China. The product was built in China. And now you're going to say, oh, well, we're going to put rules and safeguards into place, right? It's the same thing of Amazon saying that, well, we put rules and safeguards into place. So our product people you know, that are launching our own white label products on Amazon can't see the data from our third party sellers. And that's the rule. And that's the policy. Was it followed? No, because people are people and they'll find a way to go around the rule or ask a friend, or I've got this, you know, this Chinese governor that wants this thing done now, or something bad's going to happen to my family. Watch those rules those walls, they go away real fast. Let's look at uh, Zoom. This just happened six days ago. They kicked off anti-Chinese you know, Chinese Communist Party outspoken individuals, these three folks here. The Chinese government wanted these people off of Zoom. These people were hosting um, like Zoom webinar calls you know, with people, some of whom I guess were from China whatever it was. They were hosting calls. Some people from China had registered for these calls. And so the Chinese government said, I want you to kick these users off of Zoom and I want you to cancel these calls. So these were like prearranged calls. There was hundreds of people scheduled for these like webinars, right? That being run on Zoom. And so Zoom did it. They kicked these people off. They canceled the meetings and it blew up. And so now Zoom publishes this press release. Like here's the History of all the events, yada, yada, yada. I'll spare you the details. Whatever it is, Chinese government wanted this done and it got done. Did they go to the CEO, Eric, and say, Eric, take this stuff down? No, they didn't have to. You want to know why? Because there's 700 product and engineering people in China building Zoom. That's where Zoom was built. You know, let's look at Eric's background. Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom, Grew up in China. He came to the U.S. at 27 in the late 90s. It was his ninth try to get a visa. And he got the visa in 1997 and came to the U.S. because he heard a speech given by Bill Gates. And he knew that he wanted to come to the United States. He worked at um, Cisco, right? The, you know, WebEx creator and was a VP there. And eventually he left and started Zoom. But... Uh, he was he and much of his executive team at Zoom uh, were educated in China, grew up in China, and then came to the United States. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, let me be clear. 
there's nothing wrong with it. It's a, that's that's the U.S. You know that that's that is the U.S. Right? People come here, uh, they want to pursue the dream, right? Uh, the the American dream, and and now this guy Eric is a billionaire. Amazing! It's an amazing story. Where is the problem? You ask. The problem is they have over seven hundred people in China that have built the product. If you look at Zoom's revenue, not much of it's coming from China. It's coming from the U.S. and other international countries, right? So this is China, Chinese body, U.S. head. That's this article. Zoom crazy to count on Chinese R&D from TechNode. Really love this article. So they do a nice deep dive here. And looking at what, what Zoom calls their Chinese R&D. So R&D, it kind of, you know, research and development, right? Really, instead, this is their core engineering department. They have product people in the United States. They got sales and marketing people in the United States. They got customer support people in the United States. But the product is built in China. And remember when uh, a few months ago when we were talking about on the show, like, oh, these Zoom calls were being routed through Chinese servers. And it was kind of like, what? Hold on. Did we get that wrong? Zoom conference calls are being routed through China. Why would you ever do that? And it's because it's built by Chinese engineers. So you have literally the architecture of this thing exists in China. It's a Chinese product with an American wrapper around it. And as long as everyone knows that and understands that, okay, fine, use the product. Where this becomes a problem is when you have an authoritarian government, like the Chinese government, that says, I want to access, so I want to, I, I, I am going to be. Uh, listening into every one of these calls because they're because I have put my malware into your code. Because guess what, the large majority of your engineers work in China. I can guarantee you that there is CCP uh, Chinese government. You know the the beautiful thing, like the Chinese C- CIA doesn't even have a name. That's how you know they're legit. Uh, we have names for our spy agencies. They don't even have a name for the spy agency. It's a legit spy agency, and I guarantee you it's got code in the Zoom software. So now here's how they break it down. Zoom is an unusual beast. While headquartered in San Jose, its product development is largely based in China. The company employs 700 people in China, up 40% from last year. Uh, The company also mentions an R&D presence in the US, which is minuscule. While the Chinese coders in the US market startup models is unusual, it's not unique. TikTok is another example. Just cheap talent? Zoom's SEC filing says that only the company locates R&D in China because personnel costs are less expensive. But the price of Chinese engineers is going up fast. Basically, the article goes on to say, actually, it's not that much cheaper. Or if you really wanted cheaper human capital, you could go to other places besides China that don't have these government risks of data security and privacy, you could go to India, for example, right? There's other places you could go if you really wanted cheaper offshore talent. You know, this goes on to talk about, does this actually make sense? Does it pose a security threat? And I can tell you, it absolutely poses a security threat. And there's no way to just band-aid this. Now let's look at Zoom's executive team. Guess what? They're kind of all brand new, especially on the product side. This guy, president of product engineering, he just started like three months ago. Um, Oded, 
he's been there. Um, this guy, Brendan, the chief technology officer, he just started in like two months ago. He was, he was at the company, but he was doing like network security or something. And then they made him the CTO. Let's look at this guy's direct reports. So the CTO has three direct reports, Bill Liu, chief architect, Hui Pin Zhang, and Wei Li, all educated in China. They all live in the United States. I, I assume they're U.S. citizens. It doesn't matter. Point is, the guts of this business, the product, is Chinese. And this is a real challenge, I think, in, in today's current operating environment, is how do you navigate this with these two countries going head-to-head with security and very sensitive information being discussed over these calls and clear privacy risks at hand. You can't just Band-Aid this. Now, Zoom is on a hiring spree to bring in advisors. Like They just hired the f- this former CIO of KPMG and even mentioned that person. Some of these people are leaving, like this chief scientist, Hui Penjong. He just left the company. Um, so there's a lot of transition at the top of this company. And I think it's going back to this. How do you solve this problem? And I don't think there's any easy solution to it. Um, and this, this isn't going away. It's unfortunate because you would think it makes sense. Eric is from China. I'm sure he had really good roots. I'm sure he had really good engineering friends back in China. And that's where this all started, right? He needed to get a business off the ground and was bootstrapping it. And then he just kept building you know, he's from China. He understands it. Like you can continue to build that engineering team in China. Wonderful. Great. It's great that he was able to make it work. Now it becomes a problem when you have the scale and the dominance that you do and you have these other kind of political, geopolitical issues at hand. And ultimately, I think it makes your business weaker. The cost savings aren't worth it to the relative security risk and these things continuing to plague you. How can you actually now either split apart the company or move all of this outside of China? You got to do it. If you want to be able to cater to the United States and the international community at large, it's too much of a risk for a company at this scale with this much value at stake, TikTok included. I think you got to separate these. There's none of this kind of hybrid thing that I think really works. Uh, which again, just kind of goes to this much broader decoupling that we're seeing between the two countries, which is concerning for a number of reasons. Uh, but when it comes to these technology things, there's, there's genuine reasons to, to look at separating these. So we'll see. I doubt it gets done. I think that's a boon for a Microsoft Teams. I think that's a boon for Verizon's purchase of BlueJeans. The, the, this, is, this is going to help out the other competitors that don't have these same security and privacy, which are very valid risks. Anyway, let's look at Instacart. Uh, we talked about it on the show, Instacart had that great fundraise um, and, and predicted that they would be using that money to expand horizontally. They just announced uh, that Staples is rolling out same-day delivery with Instacart. Boom. There you go. For a thousand Staples stores to provide parents, teachers, owners of small companies and telecommuters with an additional avenue to shop, you can now get all of these things same day from Staples. So um, Instacart is now moving and certainly they have other retailers that are uh, like big lots 
uh, is also now joining Instacart. So now I think you're going to see this expand into really, I mean, uh, the urban environment, but now rural, the more suburban environments where you can get same day delivery of these products. And, and Instacart kind of providing that, that centralized shopping layer um, on top. I, I actually think Instacart would make a, a great acquisition target for some of these big retailers for, for a Walmart, for a Target, any retailer that has strong grocery. Uh, and as we saw a few, a few episodes ago, the linear grocery providers, their, their digital share actually declined during the pandemic because they couldn't keep up with demand. And Instacart gobbled up all of the, the linear grocery providers' um, issues and Instacart doubled its market share because the platform model, that scale, could handle that influx much better than everyone else. I think um, Instacart gets acquired in the next year here, and I think it's a, I think it's a big acquisition. Um, but still, I mean, what was their value? Was, their valuation was, I want to say, like sub $15 billion. I mean, it's a, it's a big number, but in comparison to the scale of these big retailers that are trying everything they can to compete against Amazon, uh, this makes a lot of sense to me. So it's one of these kind of great marketplace plays. You know, and, and I think you could also, these are big name stores, but there's a big push here to support small business with e-com. And that's the next topic is uh, Walmart. So Walmart partnered with Shopify. We saw Facebook also partner with Shopify. Walmart is now partnering with Shopify to help Shopify sellers sell stuff into the Walmart marketplace. Right. Right. There's a nice quote here from Doug McMillan. McMillan wants to get even more out of the business, especially after shuttering Jet last month. This was uh, from his investor call a few months ago. We don't think that we've done everything we must do and should do to support marketplace sellers in terms of the tools and services that we have available. Basically, that we need to start playing offense as Mark, the the founder of, of, of Jet. So they're now, you know, they're going after Amazon. How can we provide more tools to sellers? They want to bring on 1,200 additional sellers this year from this partnership with Shopify and hopefully more in the future. But now that Walmart has a lot of demand coming into the marketplace, got a lot of digital demand, now they have more opportunities for sellers. They need to get more inventory from sellers. And uh, you know, this is a this is a a great kind of capital light model partnership that they can use to do that. Um, another strategy we've spoken about on the show would be to go and buy some of these SaaS um, seller tool providers that aren't as big as a Shopify, for example. We just launched our industrial supply uh, landscape last week. In that landscape, we show these SaaS tools here. So um, look at some of these like Jungle Scout, um, AMZ Shark, Camel, 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 hilarious names. These are tools that help with pricing. They help with inventory management. So if I'm a seller on Amazon, these tools help to give me intelligence around pricing, products I should be selling or shouldn't be selling, or helping me look at my inventory and where my inventory is and how I fulfill orders and 
you know, all these kinds of things to work with marketplaces. So I think these tools will be really good acquisition targets or investment targets for companies that have a, a marketplace or a big e- e-commerce presence and they want to attract more supply. What's a great way to attract more supply? Provide tools and services to them, like this Walmart deal with Shopify or Facebook's deal with Shopify. Another way would be to go for these other SaaS providers. Um, Shopify is a SaaS business. They're not in Plat. They have platform dynamics, but they aren't material enough to qualify Shopify to be in Plat, the platform ETF uh, from Wisdom Tree. But these are smaller targets that you could buy or invest in. And now they have a big audience of sellers. Now you're just providing another avenue for sellers to list their products in this additional marketplace as opposed to just Amazon, right? Um, so a common strategy, but we're clearly seeing these retailers and other places try to compete more aggressively with Amazon. And I hope it works. We need more competition. Because the next topic we have here is to talk about these tech monopolies, unfortunately, going in the wrong direction. So this is Zuckerberg's op-ed. This just came out uh, yesterday in USA Today, where he's basically saying, we support free speech. We are going to let people's voices be heard. Despite cancel culture coming after Facebook and everyone decreeing that Facebook needs to silence its users more. By the way, in my opinion, Facebook silences too much. It's not like Facebook isn't doing any silencing. It's not like Facebook hasn't kicked people off the platform for posting content that Facebook says violates its terms of service. I think they've actually gone too far. So, you know, my my whole you know stance is around openness, letting people speak, and having platforms help facilitate the exchange of value and not try to determine what is right or what is truthful. That's not the role of the platform. That's the role of a publisher, which they are not. So Zuckerberg has absolutely taken the right stance. Twitter is on the wrong side of history. And basically his response in this op-ed is, if you don't like these politicians that we are not going to silence like Twitter did, vote them out of office in November. And we are launching a huge initiative to get people to vote. You got to give the guy credit. Um, you got to give the guy credit that he's able to stand up to some very um, immense pressure to curate their platform much more aggressively and silence different voices, which is wrong. And it's going to get these companies in trouble, uh, these platform companies in trouble. The DOJ is seriously looking at this. On, on yesterday's episode, we spoke how the EU, I think, is taking the right the right positioning to go after Amazon, Amazon uh, hurting its third-party sellers. We had Tim O'Reilly on the show a couple of weeks ago. We were saying how platforms like Amazon and Google take advantage of their, um, their producers first, their suppliers first. So, you know, what is any difference between Amazon and Google taking advantage of their suppliers versus Facebook or Twitter or um, YouTube, also owned by Google, taking advantage of their suppliers? Um, Actually, none. Facebook will get through this. They're going to be just fine. And I think from a regulatory standpoint, they're going to be the golden child. Um which bo- was going to bode very well for them, even though, again, I actually think they have 
silence too many folks. But let's look at Google. So yesterday, Google, this article says threatening. They've actually done it. They cut ad revenue from these two websites. Um, these two websites for violating policies on uh, race-related content. Basically, there was comments. It wasn't the articles on the websites. These are publishers and, and magazines. It wasn't the articles that Google didn't like. It was the comment section on the articles. So people left comments that some like NBC or some nonprofit reported to Google. And Google said, you got to take this stuff down. The Federalists did take down their comment section. And I don't think Google penalized them. And the Zero Hedge site did not take down their comment section. Uh, and so Google demonetized them. The whole business. You know, frankly, it's ridiculous. These... The, these tech monopolies, they take advantage of the producers. This is exactly what I was talking about with Tim O'Reilly. And, um, you know, now this website, their ability to monetize, you know, Google controls 70% of the ad revenue on these websites. I mean, it, it, what do you do if you're a website? You really have no recourse, right? I got to take down my comment section because uh, I'm violating the terms of service of Google. I mean... Let's look at the kind of stuff these guys post. Um, I read stuff on this website because this website, you know, posts kind of anti-big government articles, which which I'm always a fan of. Um, less government, less regulation is is what I'm all about. Anyway, this story is about the CIA having woefully horrible uh, cyber protection tools. Uh, there's this massive uh, leak from from the CIA, if you remember, maybe in 2017. This person, the CIA employee, stole 24 te 34 terabytes of information and leaked it to WikiLeaks. And the CIA, CIA didn't even know they had a breach. And so the article's very good. I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't uh, left, right. This isn't anything political. Uh, but what they do is they go on to pull together the different tweets to talk about, you know, here are the different uh, things that were that were leaked from the CIA. The reason why they have such lax cybersecurity, it um, has it pulls together a bunch of different information. It links you to different sections in the WikiLeaks, and they're pulling together. And then here's the engineer, uh, the the CIA uh, employee that leaked it, and here's what happened to him, and um, from from being you know put into court and all. The it's a really great article. They're pulling together a lot of information that I would not have been able to find or uh, certainly would have taken me forever to go and do this. Um, but now this website is uh, demonetized, right? And so I just, you know, maybe Google felt a little bit left out that they weren't able to uh, be lumped into the bucket with Twitter and some of the other content platforms that, that are kicking people off uh, because they're saying they're violating their terms of service. Now, here's the thing. Section 230, we've covered Section 230 in depth. Section 230 says that platforms can take down, they can take down this kind of abusive content, right? The question is, for these platforms to take down this content, they're saying it violates their terms of service. So, uh, the, the user considers to be obscene, lewd, 
filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. You know, there's a lot of back and forth to say, hey, there's fake news on these platforms. Yeah, there's a bunch of fake news on these platforms. But is fake news obscene and lewd and filthy and excessively violent and harassing? I mean, look, Americans can make up their own mind. There's fake news everywhere. There's fake news on the news, on every news channel. The platform's role is to not be that arbiter of truth. We actually just had someone uh, on on one of our videos leave a great comment talking exactly about this. He actually summed it up really nicely. So this guy here, Eduardo, says, right wing says platforms are biased against their views. The same is with left wing people. In the end, if platforms continue trying to be the arbiter of truth, neither side will be satisfied. I think that sums it up. I will leave you with that point from Eduardo. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us on on Winner Take All. I will talk to you next week.